So um, there's one thing about the whole training to be a barrister that has most solicitors scratching their head. Just talk to me about these dinners, these lunches, <laughs> whatever it is. Funny because, that solicitors want to know about that. Yes, <laughs> yes, slightly with, with a tint of jealousy in my voice. <laughs> Hello, welcome to episode 22 of the Law Black's Chris Allen one-to-one podcast. My name's Chris Allen, I'm the managing partner of Black Solicitors, and we're a law firm based in Leeds, West Yorkshire. I've worked in West Yorkshire now for over 26 years, and during that time I've met plenty of interesting people in both the business world and the sports world. And I'm looking forward to catching up with some more of those people in the near future to share with you their stories, anecdotes, and particularly in today's guest, some advice. I hope you'll find the interviews interesting, engaging and educational. At the start and at the end of the podcast, you'll hear our new signature music. I hope you like it. Any feedback's appreciated. My guest today is Barrister Christina Goodwin of St Paul's Chambers in Leeds. Educated in Leeds and Manchester, Christina was called to the bar in 2013. Christina practices from Chambers in Leeds and has a mixed practice of civil and criminal cases. And whilst we're both labelled as lawyers to the man and woman in the street, the role of a barrister is rather different to that of a solicitor. And today I'm looking forward to hearing a bit more about what I consider to be the dark art of being a barrister, how budding law students can achieve that title, and what it takes to be a barrister as we head into 2021. So, uh, Christina, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Chris. Uh, Thanks for coming in. Um, So... Being a barrister, people, I think people know what a barrister is, or they think they know what a barrister is, but what does, what does the job involve? What do, what's the day job for you? I suppose it's um, a job that involves two roles, really, um, one of which you could say is akin to being a consultant um, and giving advice, um, and the other side um, of the job, I think, is obviously that of an advocate. Um, so most of the time when we attend at court, it's not always possible to have a conference with our lay client prior to meeting them on, on the day of the hearing. So the initial step you would take is to give that client your advice. You will have had the brief, um, hopefully for longer than a day beforehand, um, but quickly you will have got a good measure of the case um, and what perhaps would be the best steps for your lay client to take, whether that be in crime or whether it be in, in, in a civil case. Um, and you'll have that discussion with your lay client before going into the hearing. Um, and then in the hearing, it's very much um, over to you and you'll put forward the you know the right representations, hopefully, in front of the judge, depending on the type of hearing that it is. Um, and you'll act on the instructions that you've obviously got from your client in the conference beforehand. So we really do straddle those two roles, to be honest. Um, and there are a lot of barristers who will um, have a practice that's um, more centralised in advice giving and, and paper based than perhaps as an advocate. Um, I think crime, 90% of it is, is advocacy, um, whereas um, a commercial barrister may find that they're barely ever in, in court. In court. So, so, so a sort of commercial dispute would be in, say, the high court or a mm. county court, mm. whereas criminal courts, magistrates... Uh, sorry, and Crown Court. Yes, That's indeed. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, hours per week that you work on average? Is there, I mean, people <laughs> have a very, uh, whether correct or incorrect view, that being a barrister is quite a glamorous job. Oh, is, it, is it glamorous, uh, oh Christina? Gosh. It's when you should say that, Chris, the, the amount of times that I've um, sent a photo of myself eating my lunch out of my lunchbox in my car to my colleagues and said, um, you know, who said this job wasn't glamorous. Yeah. Um, 
I know that you're playing this to perhaps to students, so I don't want to put them off too much, but I think the average working week can sometimes be 70, 80 hours. Um, on, on slower weeks, it can obviously be less than that. I mean, particularly with um, the effects of corona in the criminal courts, we have been a lot quieter. Um, it's picking up now, definitely. Um, but you can work more than that. Being self-employed, it's, it's really up to you and, and how you manage your caseload. I've always selfishly thought that the challenge of the barrister was the fact that if you've got another case tomorrow, another case the day after, then almost every evening is unless you've got nerves of steel, uh, is preparation time. And, 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 and I'm not saying I don't work some evenings, but, you know, that seems quite a daunting task. Is that how it does pan out? Is it Sunday night to Thursday night you are preparing most evenings? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's strange when I first told my family that I wanted to get into law and become a barrister I'll always remember my sister turning around to me and saying but you'll have homework for the rest of your life and um, I thought absolutely nail on head that's that's what it is like but you learn um, I think to manage that with other commitments family um, and and socializing um, and things have to be sacrificed um, but like you said you touched on it there unless you have nerves of steel I think um, you know there's um, there's no better advice I could give somebody to make sure that you're as prepared as you possibly can um, when you go in front of the judge because there's, there is always going to be something that you didn't prepare for but if prepared as much as you can for the rest of it then hopefully you know, you, you'll be okay so yes, a lot of evening um, working to be done so you were called to the bar 2013, so you've had seven years at, I mean I appreciate there's a pupillage before that mm. we'll come on to pupillage as a thing but fulfilling as a job, you know, seven years onto it, are we, if, I, if we weren't on a podcast and I said to you, hey, how's that job going, Christina? Is it, is the word, is it fun? Is it fulfilling? What is it? It's definitely fulfilling. Um, it took me a couple of years um, to get pupillage. So I had a, a job as a paralegal beforehand and then as a county court advocate um, which is as a solicitor's agent um, you can appear in the county courts in private um, hearings the um, legal services act gives you that ability and that was fantastic experience um, so I've been at St Paul's now since 2017 and it's definitely a fulfilling job it's a challenging job it's a rewarding job it can be frustrating um, and it can be hard um, there's a lot of responsibility um, but every day is different and I couldn't imagine um, not doing this job now um, just because um, of the different experiences that I've had um, the progression um, and also the sense of fulfillment that a lot of the time it does it does give you and, and, and of your peers who came through you know bar school with you what percentage would you say have made it to, to your position of, of still in the industry, you know, seven years on? Is it, is it, is it, what percentage is that, would you reckon? Thinking about my cohort, I think it's less than 50%. Really? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm, yes. And again, you know, I mean, I'm longer in the tooth, but if I look around at my law school friends now, quite a few years on from that, um, <laughs> you know, I, I'd say there's probably... 40% at most are still mm. still in, in the game, as, as I'd say. So, pupillage, let's, let, let's just talk about that and the path then. So, a student listening to this um, will probably have gathered, they're, they're probably thinking, I'll do a degree, might be uh, in English or it might be in history, it might be in law, I can do a conversion course, GDL. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, what am I doing? Am I going to law school, as it were, to, to be a solicitor? Am I going to bar school? Uh, to be a barrister 
just talk to me about because the next step beyond that then is a pupillage. Talk to me about pupillage. Is is it is it? I've got, I've got this Dickensian picture in my mind, and I shouldn't <laughs> in this day and age, but I've got this picture of, oof, I bet that's grim. You know, I bet that's going out to buy the cigarettes, or I bet that's legging papers around town, <laughs> as being an article clerk used to be, certainly not now. Well, what, what's a pupillage like in this day and age? Um, so the, the first six months, obviously, um, you're not what we call on your feet. You're not doing your own work. Um, you will be essentially um, following your pupil master or mistress um, around, researching their cases, assisting them um, with their preparation and their paperwork. Um, you can undertake some paid work, um, such as a noting brief sat behind counsel on a, um, a lengthy cross-examination and taking a note of that. Um, and you can be paid for that in your first six months. So, um, yes, there there is... There are obviously elements of it that perhaps do come across a little Dickensian, uh, mm. especially the following around <laughs> yeah. element, but it is an extremely instructive period. Um, and it's a fantastic way in which to um, observe other advocates aside from your actual pupil, master or mistress and the way in which they conduct the case or conduct the advocacy. Um, especially on the Northeastern circuit, um, judges are very keen um, to ensure that they introduce themselves to new pupils on circuit. Um, and I've had... Um, a few moments where um, judges have been very encouraging, um, you know, and either speaking across the bench or inviting myself and my pupil master up to chambers, um, just to have a quick conversation about how everything's going. And there really is a huge community spirit on the Northeastern circuit, particularly that I've seen. Mm. Um, and it's easy in the robing room to get speaking to, um, obviously, other barristers. Um, and uh, gleaning from their experiences and their knowledge of the judges. And do you think that's something that's developing, or do you think that's always been like that, actually? It's all, it seems to have always been like that up here, is, is the sense that I'm getting. Um, but definitely, there's, there's always room for improvement, and I think that's something that we're very aware of and are doing as much as we can for our pupils as possible. Um, we have a great set of trainers on the Northeastern circuit that hold advocacy training and other types of training for pupils, um, which I found really helpful, um, especially going into the second sixth, which is where you become what we say on your feet. So you're getting your own briefs through. And um, there's there's never I don't think there'll be a, a day ever again like the first day on your feet. Um, it's a bit of a tradition at St. Paul's that we try to put our pupils in the Crown Court on the first day. Nothing like <laughs> nothing like pushing them off a cliff. Um, so I, I covered a case with my pupil master, um, uh, what we call a pre-trial preparation hearing, which is your initial hearing in the Crown Court where we set a timetable for trial. And I had that at Lincoln Crown Court. I'll, I'll never forget it. Um, I've never read a case um, for, you know, so many times or so in depth, um, you know, trying to preempt everything that could possibly go wrong or, or could go right. Um, and I still hadn't managed to cover absolutely everything uh, because when the defendant um, turned up, he's completely changed his instructions. So, you know, <laughs> an absolute baptism of fire. Um, but that's the only way that you're going to learn in this job is by doing it. Um, we don't, um, and I don't, I speak for um, many chambers when I say this, that we, we never um, take on pupils that are ready-made barristers because there isn't such a thing unless you've actually started doing the job. Um, so your second six is an absolute whirlwind of... Um, you know, doing things for the first time. And obviously you get into the magistrates and do um, sessions. Um, and that uh, can be, well, it is back-to-back -back trials or back-to-back -back cases all day, um, given the papers the night before. 
and it's almost like a whirlwind or a um, factory line of, of just getting those cases through and um, it's a great learning experience. And, and how supportive is the is the, the the mistress, the master, your training? You know, the training partners we call them here. How how supportive are they in that second six months? Are you going to them almost daily, morning, night, saying, "Look, this is what I'm doing today," or "What do you think?" Or, or do they sort of think, "Oh, thank goodness, I ain't got that." You know, I got that, that that kid trailing after me all afternoon. Um, you know how 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 engaged are they at that point? Um, well, my pupil master was very engaged, and um, you know I still call him for assistance now. Um, you know if I need it. Um, I think it's a it, it's such a it's such a strange relationship. You know, pupil and pupil master assistants. There's nothing else like it in any other profession that I could think of. Um, that it's you know a relationship that lasts for the you know the rest of your career. They'll they'll come to your silks day, or you'll go to theirs. Um, if they go to the bench, you'll be there um, at their appointment. So um, it is a is a lasting relationship. Obviously, it's going to pe- depend person to person. It's g- going to depend on on how you know um, your pupilage was and and the experience of it. Um, but no, um, definitely. Um, as far as um, I'm concerned, and I know colleagues and the rest of my cohort across Leeds are concerned, it's you know it's a um, a point of contact that we'll maintain for the rest of our professional career. Great, that's good to hear. This podcast is, needless to say, sponsored by Black Solicitors. Blacks is a law firm based in Leeds, and we provide a range of commercial, property and private client services to clients throughout the United Kingdom. Obviously, I'd love you to enjoy this podcast and then use our services on any legal issues you have going forward. If you visit lawblacks.com, you'll see the kind words that existing clients have had to say about the services we provide. Now, back to the podcast. So um, there's one thing about the whole training to be a barrister that has most solicitors scratching their head. Just talk to me about these dinners, these lunches, <laughs> whatever it is. Funny because, that solicitors want to know about that. Yes, <laughs> yes, slightly with, with a tint of jealousy in my voice. Talk to me about those. What What is that? So there's four inns of court in London. Uh, they're the old advocacy schools. Um, there's Grays, Lincoln, Inner and Middle. I'm at Middle Temple. Um, and back in the day, um, like I said, these were the schools that taught the advocacy and taught the job of being a barrister. You were required to go to London. Um, and now uh, they are essentially um, still um, points of training for barristers. They do advocacy courses and different types of courses, such as training for vulnerable witness uh, witnesses and so on and so forth. Um, but they also are um, a massive flagship of tradition um, for, the, um, for the profession. So in your um, first, um, uh, sorry, actually throughout the whole year doing your bar course, you're required to do 12 dinners. So you're required to go down to the inn um, and have a dinner in the in the great hall, and it's normally accompanied by a lecture. Um, it isn't always if you know if you if you get lucky. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, yeah. se- seriously, they they do actually have some fantastic um, lectures that are available. If there's um, any visiting judges doing inquiries in London, um, or they will try and add on some type of training session, whether it be ag- uh, advocacy or witness handling, um, and then you. Um, all get um, robes, you get to borrow robes and you go into the Great Hall and you, you have your dinner. Um, mm. There are certain rules when you're having your dinner um, that you have to adhere to. So um, 
at Middle Temple, I don't know if it's the same for for all inns of courts, but Middle Temple, you're in, um, you're you're sat on really long tables. If you imagine something like Harry Potter, and, yes, and, I am. And I, I am mentally that. picturing yes, it, it, Hogwarts. It's almost identical, Chris. Yeah. Except, you know, except that With, we're not all witches and wizards. But um, you're only allowed to speak to. Um, four four people basically and the way in which they divide those four people up is the the person in front of you and the person to the right of you and obviously the person in front of them and the only um question that you can ask somebody outside of the four of you is to you know pass a drink or pass a salt and pepper but you have to maintain the conversation so what middle temple do which is fantastic is when they're looking at the division of the of the four people at the table they try and sit two judges or two benches um with um, two students and it's fantastic because it's not like any other dinner um, where you could try and escape or sit on a table with your friends you know you're you're confronted um, with two um, normally exceptional barristers with a wealth of experience each that you speak to for the entirety of the night and it's it's a fantastic experience um, and you can glean so much from it so as as well as having great food middle temple does fantastic port as well yeah. i was lucky every time i think i ever had a dinner no one else in my four liked port so you know all for me <laughs> um but uh, you know you, you get to have these fantastic conversations um which you know which stay with you so it's yeah it's great really great. good and so it's traditional but it sounds actually quite useful as well good Again, it's keeping you on your toes, isn't it? It's putting you in a different environment, taking you out of your comfort zone. Oh, yes, you know, absolutely. Which, which, again, I think is so important, isn't it? Is is that, you know, particularly in this line of business you're in, you've got to be able to stand on your feet. You've oh, yes. You've got to be able to, to, to deal with those scenarios, don't you, really? Absolutely, and, and interact with people um, on a daily basis who perhaps were called to the bar before you were born or have been doing the job a lot longer than you. Um, you have to be able to sort of hold yourself and, and be confident in those situations. Yeah, and I, I, in fact, that's the, exactly the word I was going to use because mm. somewhere down the line you've got to build that confidence, mm. don't you? Mm-hmm. I mean, I was going to just touch on this. I mean, advocacy, yes. big part of the job, isn't it? Mm. If I walk through there, if I walk around Leeds, actually, and bump into anybody else I know, um, everybody seems slightly intimidated by advocacy. It doesn't matter who they are. Um, how did you get over that? Because cause if, I, if I said to Shane, who's recording this for us now, Shane, tomorrow will you stand up in front of the whole firm and do a presentation on IT? You might love that idea, Shane, but I suspect from your face you're thinking I'd rather not. Um, <laughs> I went on the radio yesterday for an hour. I, I have colleagues in other law firms who can't believe that mm. i can't believe you go on the radio yeah i can't believe they say that to me because mm. i think it goes with the territory mm. but you know this confidence of advocacy where did you get it from i th- i think that i always enjoyed um public speaking at school um i was heavily involved in the drama department so stage fright was never really an issue for me but i think that you will always have nerves um, because the cases just get more and more serious. And I don't know any barrister um, that's ever stood up um, before particularly cross-examination and not, you know, thought, um, let, you know, let's go for this, let's see how it goes. Um, my first ever mini-pupilage I had in Manchester, and I managed to um, spend the lunch break with the barrister that I was following and a silk, um, a QC that she knew that had a case there. And he said to me something that I'll never forget. He said, the moment you stop getting nervous, it means you don't care. So leave the job. And he was still getting nervous. And that was 
you know, for a law student to hear, um, that was a great comfort, um, knowing that we'll, we'll always be a bit apprehensive because it, it shows that it actually means something to us. So I think the best way of um, trying to um, get over those nerves or at least work with them, I think would be more appropriate to say, is to ensure that you're as prepared as you can be, um, that you've taken your instructions from your client um, and that you focus on the point that you want to make. But also I think that you find that actually when you're addressing the judge or when you're addressing the jury, the rest of the room disappears because you are so focused on what you want to say. So actually instead of it being you stood in a courtroom addressing 20 people, it can be one person or it can be 12 people. Um, and I think that's um, of some assistance. Obviously you, you never lose appropriate and relevant awareness um but there is always those moments where sometimes um you know you do you do sort of forget or allow yourself to forget that there are sort of 15 people in the public gallery perhaps and there is a buzz to this isn't there there is adrenaline i mean i've done advocacy in the employment tribunal there is a when it's going well it's a great feeling isn't it huge huge adrenaline um i think from the majority of barristers that i've spoken to the biggest buzz the the biggest sort of surge for adrenaline is before a closing speech in a jury trial um it, you know it's your last chance it's tying together all those loose ends um and the adrenaline can be because um, you've run a good, what you feel is a good case, you've got a lot to say, or the adrenaline can be because you've got nothing to say, um, you know, and you're, yeah, I've, I've seen some, some barristers um, do some absolutely incredible closing speeches that I just don't know where they've pulled it from, but that's obviously their experience and um, an ability shining through. Um, but from what I've gleaned, that seems to sort of be the biggest, biggest moment. And the COVID crisis has thrown a bit of a hand grenade into everything, hasn't it? How... What about these virtual hearings then? You, you know, we're cross-examining Shane here and we're doing it. <laughs> you know, and you've got him in the dock, he's on the back foot, isn't he? Uh, do you feel, you know, when, you, when, you, when you're doing cross-examination in a virtual hearing, what's your gut feel on how that's going? And, and how, do you, how do you, could it be any better? We haven't done um, any type of cross-examination that I'm aware of in a criminal setting um, virtually. Um, I speak for myself and those that I know, it could be that elsewhere that they're actually doing that, but I have done in civil trials. So, um, for example, in a fast-track trial where there's been a road traffic accident um, and those types of things come to litigation and to the court and have to have a trial. It is particularly... Um, difficult because it's hard to read the person and it's I think it must be hard for the judge to to read the person as well as they could if they were sat in front of them um but I wouldn't I wouldn't say that it's so bad that um, access to justice is being hampered no. in any way. Um, I think judges are experienced enough um, to be able to interpret witness evidence very well, um, regardless of whether they're sat in front of them or on a Skype hearing. I think the difficulties can be when we have uh, connection difficulties um, and technical issues like that that can be frustrating and um, especially if you're part heard and then unfortunately someone's link goes down but I find that my preparation for cross-examination and the way in which cross-examination flows is completely different than when you're actually in court and in front of somebody because if there's a delay on their end 
really doesn't pack the same punch if you're yeah. obviously building up the cross-examination to back them into a corner. When you deliver the blow, it doesn't quite no. land um, no. with as much perhaps power as you would like it to. But as long as the points have been made, you've got the answers um, or as many answers you can that you need, you can tie that all together in yeah. the closing speech. Um, so definitely a different world on virtual hearings, um, but I don't think you're, you're altogether hampered by having no. them. No. no. So not perfect, but the virtual blow is still a blow. <laughs> well, let's, let's so hope. At, at, at the opening of this, I refer to the dark art of being a, a barrister, which I don't mean in a, in a derogatory way, but there's just some of the things that people don't understand how these things operate. Mm. I think people generally, law students generally dig it, that if you become a solicitor, you, be, you, you might enter into a partnership, mm-hmm. yeah, where an LLP, a limited liability partnership, some of the thing. But barristers are all self-employed, aren't they? But they operate from chambers. So just tell me how that works. When you go, you're invited in to work, to work in a chambers, are you? Yes, there are some barristers that are employed. Um, the, so the Crown Prosecution Service employees, barristers, um, I think people like Tesco, Asda, Eddie Stobart, I think Mm. they employ their own counsel. Um, So you do have some in-house, but the majority of us, yes, are self-employed. So when you're offered a pupillage, obviously you'll do your 12 months. Um, It's important to make sure that you're working from chambers and getting to know people in chambers, because after your 12 months, there will be a vote on whether or not to give you tenancy and allow you to become a tenant in chambers, and and all members of chambers will cast their vote. Wow. is that so, a secret ballot? It, well, or? <laughs> I think, to be honest, I think it depends on the chambers. We, we do ours um, at a meeting, so it's, um, right. you know, if you can't attend, it's by proxy, but no, everyone's sort of in a room together. Right. Um, but sometimes, yes, if we're unable to, to meet, it can be done by email, so you don't actually know who everybody, what, what everybody's saying right. or what their vote is. Um, so, yes, at that stage, you become a tenant um, if you're successful and you start paying rent. Um, so that's a percentage of your earnings. Um, chambers work differently as to how they structure um, their rent and the percentage that they charge you and so on and so forth. What that does is obviously it goes into one giant pot and that covers all our outgoings. So yeah. it pays for our clerks, our building, everything from, you know, the newspaper to, you know, to our book subscriptions and so on and so forth. Right. Yeah. And that just really covers the running costs of the, the building, mm. the admin, the clerks. Yes, Okay, so let's talk about clerks. If I watch certain <laughs> television shows, you'd think that the clerks run the show rather <laughs> than the barristers. <laughs> I'm not I'm not I'm not suggesting that's right. But talk to me about the clerks, and they're intriguing. So they're not barristers, they're not lawyers, is that right? They are people who what? Allocate the work get the work in and allocate it. So um our clerks are um the biggest cogs in the engine. Um Yes, we are self-employed, but the clerks run our diaries. Um, The relationship between a barrister and a clerk, I think, is another very sort of individual um, type of of relationship that I think you would only find at, at the bar. They as well as networking on our behalf and bringing work in, like I said, they also run our diaries um, and they will... They will obviously input all our hearings into the diaries and ensure that our diaries run smoothly. So there may be days where you have three or four cases that are that are in on that day, and they will ensure um, by liaising with listing, with the courts, with the other side, with other clerks, that you are able to get to all four of those hearings. And if they can't, then they'll ensure that the cover's in place um, to to obviously get you there. But they. they 
their, their roles are all encompassing really, you know, as, as well as managing the diary. Um, like I said to you before, they, they do um, network on our behalf as well, um, particularly um, your head clerk um, will go out and meet with solicitors and forge those um, really important relationships. So I think um, having uh, enthusiastic and hardworking clerks is absolutely essential um, because you want somebody that you know solicitors will get on with. Um, because a lot of the time, I think people instruct barristers as individuals because they've worked hard for them or they have a good reputation but I think sometimes they instruct them because they're coming from a set with a really decent clerking team and they know that if they book this barrister that barrister will get to that hearing they'll be clerked efficiently the brief will arrive um, and be sent to them straight away and so on and so forth Um, and I think sometimes I'm instructed um, perhaps because of me but also because I'm at St Paul's Chambers Um, so they they play a huge um, you know and really important role in in our lives Um, and so that you know that relationship is you know is a special one um you know sometimes uh you know sometimes we'll probably get frustrated at each other um but a lot of the time you know i'm i'm really uh, asking them for favors um mm. and you know uh don't get me wrong they're definitely calling me asking for a few and it's just yeah. that type of relationship that we have so you wouldn't be far wrong in saying they run the show to and, be and and how do you become a clerk I mean, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't remember seeing a course for that. Mm. Is that something people, you know, how does that come about? It's a really niche job. Um, it's, it's not like a, a role as a PA or a PR or, or um, any type of administration working um, in an office. Um, you've really got to know the profession. Um, you've got to know what it's like working with barristers. Um, and I think that it's, it's a role that's best taught um, by coming into it as young as possible um, and learning from the ground up from others around you. I'm not sure about courses and training and so on mm. and so forth, um, but I know that... Uh, our clerks, uh, I think I'd be right in saying, have been clerks for their whole profession, mm. um, or at least the majority of them have, um, and have learned from from the ground up. And some of them, I think, are homegrown of a couple of decades. Yeah. So um, it's definitely, a, again, same with being a barrister, a job that you've just got to learn by doing it, really. And am I right in saying that clerks are remunerated as a percentage of the brief fees or is that old-fashioned hat now um no i did uh, no i think most of them have their set wages right. now i'm not i'm not entirely sure about um right. uh, yeah. wage structures or, or bonus um structures or percentages we'll probably find that following this conversation everybody who all the students who listen will want to be clerks rather than barristers. <laughs> <laughs> certainly, yeah, not, certainly not solicitors folks <laughs> so uh okay and and that work gets allocated by the clerk, so, so a piece of work comes in, black solicitors instruct your chambers. Do you have any say in how that work comes to you? I, I mean, you might say to the clerk, look, I, you know, the next, empl- perhaps not in your case, next employment case that comes in, can I have it? Or does the clerk say, no, no, it's not like that, Christina. This is how we delegate the work or this distribute the work. Right? Yeah, so we, we um, have practice meetings with our clerks and we chat to them about um, the ways in which we would like to diversify or progress or expand our practice. Um, and they're fantastic. As well as us obviously having to network, they will go out um, and meet with people and try and get that type of work into chambers. If there is a brief that obviously comes in with your name 
on it, then obviously it goes to you. But in terms of distribution, they will obviously look at the um, level of barrister that's required for that particular brief, um, who's available, um, and um, whose practice it fits best. Um, so really, they're trying to be as fair as possible, but they also have to ensure that the right sort of level of a uh, barrister is looking over something. Um, but a lot of the time you'll find that uh, briefs come in named and with requests yeah. for particular barristers. Yeah, and actually when yeah. I look back, I think well, that's probably how what we do, actually. Yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure we do. Okay, so we're not in any way saying bad things about your clerks. They oh. all sound like a lovely bunch of people. Absolutely. I wouldn't, yeah. say, I wouldn't say anything else. Just in case for, uh, they're listening in. No, my diary will empty out the moment I walk out of this yeah, office. Yeah, that's, that's right, yeah. <laughs> and then I never got another case. <laughs> Talk to me about winning cases and losing cases because one of the differences between our respective roles is as a solicitor, you sort of have more day-to-day contact with clients, but obviously then when we get to the hearing, we pass over to you, you deal with it. Obviously, win a case, everybody's happy. Lose a case, you know, generally I, I would say that that we have, we, have, we have a task on our hands and if we have to deal, deal with that. How do you deal with it? Personally, how do you deal with a victory personally? What what do you do? Do you have a set routine of what you do? Is it, is it six cases of champagne out? And uh, <laughs> as, as, as we'd all love to think, that's the way the bar is. Yes, or... I was going to say no. Unfortunately, <laughs> uh, unfortunately not. Um, no, I can't say I have a routine like you know footballers do when they approach the the, yeah. the side of the pitch. But I think particularly for the junior end. If anything, because this isn't a profession where a lot of the time or any of the time someone is around to say good job or pat you on the back, it's just an assurance for you that actually um, something went right there, that you're doing okay. And so that's what I take from any victories, um, you know, as just a way in which of themselves sort of patting me on the back really and saying, you know, you're doing okay at this job and and crack on and move on to the next one. Um, It definitely gives you that assurance um, and encouragement. And sometimes, you know, those victories can come when you least expect them. (laughs) So, um, you know, it's full of surprises is this this job. So, yes, uh, definitely, I think for me, it would just be a case of, um, you know, taking it, taking the win, ensuring that I you know feel good about myself and the way in which I approach that case and trying to channel that good energy into the into the next one really and talk to me about I'm sure there aren't many occasions but talk to me about the odd defeat talk to me talk to me you're very kind Chris yeah. talk to me about how long that defeat you know if I if you were a professional footballer sat there Christina you'd you'd say to me you'd you'd, you'd lost a match and and for the next two days don't bother talking to me mm. uh, you know, how how long how long do do things sit with you if things haven't gone to plan? I think it depends on what it is, but I um, when I speak to uh, upcoming pupils or law students, I when um, they're asked a lot of the time in applications, what are the um, ex- what are the qualities perhaps that a barrister should have and a lot of them come forth with you know good advocacy good judgment which are all absolutely essential but I think it is the ability to deal as well as you can with your losses and your wins and I think when you're dealing with your losses you can't dwell on them for too long because you have 
probably another case that afternoon you have another case the next day and if you dwell on it too much you can sometimes end up falling down this rabbit hole um losing a bit of confidence and that could impact on the next hearing so I think a lot of the time what I find is that if it's something that has um, particularly bothered me that perhaps I didn't see coming I will park it and do what needs to be done for the remainder of the day and then I think the best way of handling it is speaking with my colleagues Um, we have a really um, uh, supportive atmosphere at St Paul's and um, you know I could pick up the phone really to anybody and it's just doing a post-mortem of the situation um, and going through it um, and seeing where it was that you went wrong or perhaps you disagree with with the final outcome um, and not being afraid of um, delivering some self-criticism where it's deserved but also when it's you know identifying when it's not deserved you know and not to give yourself too much of a hard time and mm. um, because mistakes are going to be made yeah. um, and I think as soon as you realize that and are able to deal with that um, then you know, um, move on and, and and address the next thing. I probably wouldn't have asked this question 20, 30 years ago when I started my career. But do do, do many barristers have a sort of um, not, not within chambers, but outside of chambers, a mentor or a, or a, a psychologist or a you know Ronnie O'Sullivan, if he was sat here, would say <laughs> one of the big things Ronnie does is he has a uh, I think it's a psychologist therapist who helps him focus on winning. And obviously, I had some fantastic results, mm-hmm. and and that guy's made quite a career going around and talking about. You know, I think he's the the chimp paradox guy, isn't he? The the, the chimp on your shoulder <laughs> right. guy. Yeah, yeah. So, um, do many barristers go go down that road? Do they have, to your knowledge, do they have a third party out there, psych, not psyching them up, but can you know helping them with mental strength? We have um, a well-being uh, initiative um, that's being um, pushed very hard by the Bar Council to ensure that Chambers are coming up with ways in which um, to um, ensure that barristers are well in themselves, that they are encouraged, that they can get through difficult points in their career and and personal life, um, you know, as, as... effectively as possible um, in our chambers we have we do actually have a mentor scheme where a, a senior barrister almost kind of buddies up with a junior barrister mm. and we meet a certain amount of times a year um, and go over um, you know any uh, difficulties that we've had but also visit um, proud moments as well because we don't do that a lot in our profession um, circuit actually does pay for a counsellor Um, And that counsellor is available at the end of the phone. We've all got a free session with that counsellor and then we can pick up from there. There is also, I believe, um, a helpline that's been set up by the Bar Council as well, as well as a website that's got lots of different um, pieces of advice um, and information on there. And um, I I think really a lot of us um, have good relationships within our chambers or with our clerks and there is somebody for us to go and speak to. But in terms of third parties, um, Circuit has definitely provided us, um, you know, with the with the counsellor and different um, sessions to check into every now and again. As a chambers, we actually had um, we had a session um, a few weeks ago with um, the counsellor for for circuit who took us through really um, the effect that um, corona is having on the bar and on barristers and on professionals in general and um, the financial effects and dealing with those and that was extremely helpful because I think the job can sometimes be a bit of a lonely one Um, and then when you throw corona on top of that which has you know the 
an extremely isolating effect. I mean, that's the whole point. Um, it can seem increasingly lonely. So knowing that actually, in fact, there are other people that are dealing with the exact same things as you um, is really comforting. So yes, there are there are definitely people that we can go to and, yeah, and you know well, seek encouragement. That's good from. to hear because I'd, I'd be it'd be interesting if we could go back in time and ask that question thirty years ago and see if there was any of that yes. going on in any mm. in any profession. And, mm. I don't, and I don't mean that with criticism in my voice. So we, we touched we touched on generating work. Obviously, as you say, Corona has has knocked on the head some of some of your work and lots and lots of industries out there. What are the rules on networking? Well, I mean, if you come to work for me as a solicitor, you know, crikey, I spend my life telling people, let's get breakfast networking, let's get on the radio, let's get out for lunch, let's get coffees in. Don't forget to do your work, but let's do all this. <laughs> and if you want to be an equity partner, it wouldn't be a bad idea if you were quite good at that. Mm. You know, build a network as a young person. Mm. And guess what? In in 15 years' time, those those contacts who used to be the, the office junior and now senior people handing out work, and guess what? You'll be bringing work into the firm, and guess what? We want you to be a partner. Mm. Um, what are the rules on networking for barristers? I see barristers out, but I'm not sure they're networking the way I network. What? Mm. What are? How do you go about it? Um, like I said to you before, when I asked that question of law students about the qualities um, of a barrister, um, you get, like I said, the normal ones, such as advocacy and judgment. But I think you need to be able to distinguish between what makes a good barrister and what makes a successful barrister. And what makes a successful barrister is the person that recognises that they are their own business. And it's essential that we network. Because you are your own business, it's up to you how you network. So there are some of us who, yes, um, do enjoy uh, lunches with solicitors, building that relationship through work, but also that social element. Um, where, whereas there are others who are uncomfortable with that and would rather um, just produce the work, um, seek repeat instructions through that work alone and how they've performed and leave it as that and also you do rely on your clerks as well and um, to be able to forge those relationships um which come from obviously social elements um such as the person you know hopefully a, a great personality meet over a lunch and um, but also that chambers is able to perform well for them and well for their firm you know um approachability decent return times um and uh, you know if they have a last minute case that we're able to facilitate that and have a barrister cover it so i think it really does depend on the person i mean for me chris i'm, I'm definitely up for a lunch anytime and i yes. know many members of our chambers are but like i said you know it really comes down to the individual and what they're what they're comfortable doing yeah, yeah. what about um uh, and what about social media how careful are barristers with social media because obviously that's exploded i remember i started using twitter i don't know 11 years ago and if nearly when it first came out not many legal professionals used it almost everybody use it now that that level you know that little advantage i possibly had is now leveled out no problem but obviously that that image that barristers portray the images that managing partners of law firms portray <laughs> You've got to be sensible. You've got to be careful. Mm. Do you do you just have a bar? Do a bar? Do you like that pun? Do you have a bar <laughs> on it, or what, what? What do what do we say in chambers about social media? Most chambers, well, I think all chambers actually have a social media policy and the type of things that they would. Um, expect people to follow I think a lot of it is common sense really um, you don't want to be saying things that are particularly you know defamatory um, online uh, and I think again it comes back to the point that you're your own business but you've also got to remember a lot of the time you are a member of chambers so you represent them too personally for me um, I don't do a lot 
um, on social media such as Twitter mm. when it comes to um, having a public opinion. I like to remain um, relatively guarded because I would never want to give an opinion um, online about something that would then perhaps have an effect of a reduction in any type of instructions for me. Mm. It's not that, obviously, I'm not afraid to have an opinion. I just um, want to pitch that opinion at what I feel would be an appropriate time. And that's me, you know, yeah. because I'm my own business. Whereas I know that there are a lot of barristers that are active on Twitter. Um, and there are there are pros and cons to that. I think for a lot of people, our profession is a very much in the dark profession. Mm. A lot of people don't understand it. And they don't understand that courts are public places. And you're more than welcome to come in and sit in a court and ensure that justice is being done, you know, off your own back. Um, there are a lot of people who completely misunderstand um, what barristers do and, mm. and who we are and so I think having um, some sort of a Twitter presence can be a really good thing mm. and also when um, certain uh, opinions are given out perhaps by politicians and so on and so forth us as um, you know readers of the law and, and those that can seek to challenge it or enforce it are able to give a very visual and public opinion um, but again, um, I'd be very careful in giving certain opinions because of the effect that that could potentially have, but also very, very careful with opinions that we give on cases, perhaps the ones that we've been involved in, because I mean, it's, it's all over the code of conduct as well. And it's, and it's in, you know, it's entwined in sort of our ethics is that, you know, that could go on to be appealed and then you put yourself in a really difficult position. Mm. So, um, like I said, I think it's very much up to the person and, and how they would like to um, present themselves to the world in that respect. Yeah, and for the students who might be listening to this, I mean, it is the next generation, of course, have grown up with social media. They've mm. grown up with, uh, you know, the, this Instagram with Twitter, etc. So there is this sort of challenge going forward of everything you've ever posted can be found. Oh, yes. Um, oh, gosh, yes. So, Absolutely. you know, uh, uh, as I say to my trainees... You know, this is a professional practice. Yes. And, 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 okay, we're not robots, but at the same time, this is a profession. Yes. It, it, you know, it's not a party. No. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and grown-up life can be pretty unforgiving, can't it? It can, absolutely. You know? We uh, have a blog that goes onto our website that our junior clerk writes, and um, that's great for being able to update everybody about the type of cases that barristers in our chambers have been handling. Our junior clerk, um, when he can, likes to um, include a little bit of comedy into that blog as well, um, you know, which uh, offers a, you know, a little bit of light reading um, and, you know, a chuckle or two. So, so that's good. And a lot of us um, have LinkedIn profiles and um, we can share that post again or if we've been in the newspaper, share that particular article um, and that assists us with our networking as well virtually. Mm. Um, but other than that, um, I don't, you know, I don't really no. sort of present myself in that way online. No. Now, we were treading slightly carefully when we talked about clerks. <laughs> Could you tell? Yeah, just slightly. <laughs> Let's talk about judges. Oh, right. Okay, so I'm watching a TV show called Billions a few weeks ago, and there's Chuck, the DA, district attorney, lurking down a corridor waiting for the judge to walk past, and duly does. And, then, and of course, because it's TV drama, reminds the judge of an old favour he called on, in on him years ago. Talk to me about the relationship that barristers have with judges, because most judges... A former barristers uh, what is that relationship is there a if you see a judge on the street do you stop and have a chat or is it just a nod of the head and oh you know 
I think it depends um, on your relationship with the judge and how long perhaps you've known them if you were going to you know stop and have a conversation especially at the junior end we're only um just starting to get to know judges and because a lot of the time our work will be on the northeastern circuit we will end up in front of the same judges um you know a number of times per week it's definitely not an in the shadows relationship Mm -hmm. like that billions description um that's just not not the way it works here everything um you know is very much out in the open judges um will always be uh, available to us to speak to if there are issues on a case um ones which need to be discussed in in private will be done obviously with our opponent um and they you know judges uh, most of the time can be of fantastic assistance because like you said um the majority of them have been barristers before and could have come across the exact same problem perhaps that you're having with your lay client and as much as they can't advise us they can make some kind of accommodation for the difficulties that we're having so our relationship um with them um i, I don't think there's any sort of speciality to it um i think that they're there obviously to enforce the rule of law they're there to help um, and accommodate us as best they can if we're having particularly difficulties um and uh, each each judge has their own personality, really, and you, and you get to know them as you you know you get you get in front of them more and more. There's you know in civil law, for example, um, you know you get to know your judges that um, would like you to write up the order rather than them doing. You know just those little things yeah. um, that will assist you. Um, in the long run, um, in demonstrating to the judge that you're paying attention to them, but also will assist your client because you're there and you're prepared for that particular judge. Um, obviously, you would hope um, would divert some gratitude in your direction, um, not in a way which would influence the case, obviously, but would assist in your relationship with that judge. I think um, the biggest thing between us, though, is the trust. The judge um, has to be able to trust you. Um, the amount of times, well, every single time where um, I've had a document, um, perhaps I've I've had a lay client that um, breached bail because they were in hospital, and I've got the hospital appointment in front of me, uh, the letter in front of me. The judge won't ask to see it because they will trust me yeah. as counsel that I have seen it and I am telling them what's on that letter. And th- and that ties in with your duty as an officer of the court. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, um, and so that I think that's um, that's the most important element of the relationship between us. And, and and is being a judge, you know, did you set off thinking, I'll hopefully get a pupillage, I'll hopefully become a barrister, I might become a QC, I'd love to be a judge, mm-hmm. or is that an aspirational sort of goal for every barrister, or is it, or is it not? No, I don't. I don't think it's an aspiration for every barrister because you soon realise once you get into this profession that it's a completely different job and actually some people prefer the camaraderie of the bar um, and don't wish to go to the bench um, so yes that there, there are definitely a, a number of barristers that, that look to the bench and particularly to sit if they can part-time so that they can keep their practice going but also have some time where they where they sit in different court centres um, but uh, whether or not it's an aspiration of mine, I haven't I haven't quite made my mind up right. yet. And and is being a judge is, is is that perceived as a really hard job? And I don't and I don't say that with a smirk on my face. Is it perceived as a as a tough job now? Uh, I mean, my view is I know people say, oh, court sit ten till four or whatever. That's not so bad. Try concentrating for six hours. You know, it's not that easy. Um, is being a judge perceived as a tough 
job or is it perceived as a, as a nice move, another intellectual challenge, um, just a different thing to do? No, I think it is a tough job. Um, and just to touch on what you said there, Chris, about 10 till 4, it's definitely not 10 till 4. I mean, we've already discussed the homework hours. The judges have them as well. It's not that once you become a judge, that drops away. Mm. You know, you'll be reading your case just as you would have done as counsel for the next day. Um and I think that, you know, particularly the criminal judges, when they're obviously handing out sentences, you look at um, very public cases and the comments um, that members of the public can give on newspaper articles that give, you know, give out the sentences. And they'll go for the judge straight away as if it was the judge that just pulled this figure from the air. And in fact, it's not. The judge is obviously guided by case law and the sentencing guidelines. Um, so no, it, it is a it is definitely um, a tough job. It's it, it's intellectually challenging, um, and there are many 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 hours of work that are involved. There's been many a time where I've been either involved in or or um, listening to a very difficult sentencing exercise, and um, the way in which the judge has been able to deal with it, um, you know, has been extremely impressive. And the actually, re, and this happened to me recently. Uh, counsel can sometimes have a conversation about the way in which perhaps something should be said, particularly in civil law, in an order. Um, and we can talk about it for half an hour, draft what we think is right, hand it up to the judge, and within seconds, the judge is able to reword it into something so much better um, than we came up with. And you think ah, that's why you're up there and, and I'm yeah. sat down here because you know they've got all this experience um, behind them and they're able to um, you know to deal with it in a, you know in a in a very effective way. So okay. thank you. So uh, talk to me about your best experience as a as a barrister. Then what if I if I what's your gut instinct when I say that to you? What was the what was the best day you've had? I'm not. I'm not sure if it'd be a best day, but um, I had my first junior brief uh, last year, um, led by Helen Chapman in my chambers, um, and it turned out to be an eight-week uh, case. Um, we were defending um, defendant charged with rape, multiple counts, multiple complainants, and I think for me um, professionally, um, extremely challenging. And obviously, having my first junior brief, and you know navigating um, that role and exactly what it entailed um, was uh, was difficult and making sure um, that Helen was was fully prepared I'd done all the research and the disclosure as well which obviously in in a case such as that um, you know was was huge so I think it was the best moment um, for me that entire case because I was able to sit um, in court um, and watch um, prosecuting counsel and Helen um, advocate their way through their case fantastically and it was just a great learning experience as well because I wasn't just observing you know I was um, I'd taken this huge professional step and um, which I felt really grateful for and again it comes back to that encouragement and, and assurance um, and I had that every day for eight weeks but it was also the ability um, you know to learn so much um, from these two advocates in front of me um, from the trial itself um, and obviously the the job that I was doing so I think that's been the, the best experience for me today and, and you know what's coming now of course after the best experience and to make you feel better let me tell you that uh, on the same question of worst experience 
Um, I remember, because uh, I didn't do an awful lot of advocacy as a, as a young, young solicitor, I do remember losing an unopposed application, uh, which was something... It's possible, Chris. Yes, Don't feel too yes, bad about that. in Bradford County Court. I remember it well. That was a long walk back to the office. Um, so, worst experience, where's it, where's it? Obviously, don't tell us the case. Has anything ever gone horribly wrong? The witness has turned into a madman or... Um, Long gap because there's never been a bad day. <laughs> no, it's probably because I'm yeah. sort of deciding which one to use. <laughs> to be honest, I think when I th- when I think about my worst experiences, um, I don't. It, it's not that I haven't learnt from those experiences because I think the only thing we learn from are our mistakes. But what every single one of them had in common was that I didn't trust myself and my gut feeling and my pupil master gave me a couple of pieces of advice that his pupil master had given him on my very first day and one of them was not to ignore your gut feeling Um, and that when something felt wrong it probably was and when something's gone wrong for me it's probably because we haven't had the outcome that I wanted or, or the client wanted but perhaps because I'd ignored something deep down that I I knew was right so I'm not only beating myself up for the loss but I'm beating myself for, up for not listening to something mm. now nine out of ten times it would have made no difference but I think at the junior end because you are just getting used to the job um and you are still making your making your way through and and getting to know yourself and what you're good at in the profession um that when you do um consider something that perhaps no one else in the room has considered or you're being told by somebody very senior is wrong you do doubt yourself and i know that i have that in common with a lot of my cohort because we are so junior um but I think um, every day um, I'm learning from those experiences um, not not to ignore that gut feeling. Yeah. So, that, yeah. And that's really interesting because I'd say one of the things that, that, that I've come to realise over the last few years is that, it, that following your instinct is absolutely right. Mm. Driving home, you know, I've got a bad feeling down that road. There might be roadworks. So I'll go the other way. Yeah, you know? absolutely. Yeah. When you don't yeah. follow it, guess what? You're sat in there, you know, <laughs> in, in a traffic jam in this day and age, it's quite a, quite a relief. Um <laughs> Okay, well, I'll let you off the hook there, Christina. Thank, Thank you, you so much for updating me. I hope any budding barristers out there uh, will listen to that, will have found it useful. If Well, I'm sure they have found it useful, quite frankly. Well, I hope so, yes. Um, it, it seems to me, um, for those who are thinking about a career as, as a barrister, an early dollop of confidence it, it, it would always be welcome. So think about how you can do that. Interesting that Christina told us that she did uh, some acting at school, etc., public speaking. I know that puts the fear of God into most people, most students, and I know that because it put the fear of God into me when I was, and 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 now it doesn't. But it does really because it's the adrenaline. It's the adrenaline of going on the radio. It's the adrenaline of appearing in the employment tribunal, uh, and 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 there is that buzz. And I think what also I'm taking away from what you said, Christina, is is this variety. You know, again, when people ask me, what do you what do you like about your job, Chris? I say I like the I like the variety. I oh, like, absolutely. I meet, I meet different people. I mm-hmm. see different things. Okay, I wear a suit and I, I I follow a little route to 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 this office. You know, but but every day is different. So, and with that also, I think goes a dollop of reality to all the students who are listening. This isn't a nine to five job. This isn't a load of money. Easy. You know, it, no. it's 
it's a challenging job, it's an intellectual job, it's going to be an exciting job, it's going to be highs and lows, probably more highs and lows, to be honest, but it isn't a shoe-in and it isn't a piece of cake and it isn't a gift. And, um, you know, so if you're up for that challenge, uh, then I suppose we'll follow Christine's advice, we'll, we'll, we'll try to get some confidence, we'll get that confidence by putting the effort in to do public speaking. There are people out there who can train you to do public speaking. There are people out there who can help you with presentation skills. There's access to the internet that shows you where you can look at courses. Uh, but I know from my employment law work that, that everybody's self-confidence is wafer thin. It doesn't take much to break it. So building it is 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 a process. So to any of the students out there listening, we, we, we both wish you well, I'm sure. Uh, obviously, we, we, we need the next generation to come and replace us. Uh, yes, certainly absolutely. replace me before they replace you, uh, Christina. <laughs> but uh, thanks again. It's been fantastic. Uh, thank you for being so frank and so honest. Uh, I don't think any clerks or judges are going to listen to that and, and be stomping around St Paul's to give you what for. <laughs> And I'll, well, f- and I'll finish by saying your dad will be proud of you. Thank well you, done. Chris. Thank you, and thanks for having me. You're welcome.